appreciate your coming, and uh, we are going to continue with some supplemental arguments and some uh, really uh, proofs of inerrancy. We talked about continuity last time. We got into what fulfilled prophecy did to uh, this argument as well. So many prophecies of the Old Testament that had been fulfilled and they were fulfilled accurately and very clearly. Also, archaeology, there's a great argument for some archaeological finds that have happened in primarily the last uh, couple of hundred years that really nailed down some things that uh, we had not known uh, other than what the Bible said, and now we have some secular evidence that these uh, cities and these people existed. Also, uh, we talked about the Hittites, uh, Belshazzar, some of the things there. We uh, got into the unique content of the Bible and how this really fits the condition of the world. It really fits what man is all about. The Bible talks about man's depravity. And uh, we get into the graphic portraits of the great men of the Bible. They're all pictured as sinners. We got into uh, depravity a little bit. The Bible talks about our fallen world. Why do people act the way they do? We have so much education now. We have such a great environment in so many parts of the world. You would think this would change the nature of man, but it has not. Really, only the biblical view of man seems to be correct and fits the facts. And then we have the concept of life and death. The Genesis account gives us uh, the biblical explanation for how we got here and why we die. I don't know if you've ever listened to a talk show or listened to some of the so-called smart people out there. They'll get onto these uh, panels or maybe a radio interview or a television interview, and they'll talk about why people die and why people uh do what they do, and what happens after death. And these are people that have written all kinds of books, they teach at a university, they got a doctor's degree, and after about 30 seconds of their opinions of those things, you wonder, what in the world are they talking about? They have no idea. They're a million miles away from the biblical view of man. They have, they have no understanding. They don't even have a uh, 12, 13, 14 year old teenage understanding of what the Bible teaches about us. And the Bible makes it very clear that we're depraved, it gets into why we die, and why we die is part of the fall. Part of the fall. Death comes because of sin. And so that's, that's so clear. 
And then we got into, I think we got into, uh, sometimes I can't remember where we stopped last time, but uh, the Bible gets into the ability to change lives by the new birth. How many drunks have you known? Child beaters, uh, wife beaters, uh, all kinds of uh, people uh, that do horrible things and they have an encounter with the Lord. They get saved. They are changed by the new birth. And some people continue to just scratch their head about that. Well, I don't understand how he could have done this, 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 and this. And now he doesn't. And now he's a different kind of guy. They want to really make him out to be a phony or a hypocrite or something. He's really the way he used to be. You know, uh, old leopard can't change his spots. You hear a little of that. The Bible talks about our changed life when we meet Jesus Christ. All of these things that I'm mentioning tonight uh, is really a great argument for inspiration. The plan of salvation, the new birth, and the maturing process in Christ really works. It really makes a difference. And so that is where we are and uh, where we will begin. We're going to uh, get into some uh, new material tonight. We will basically continue with good arguments and strengths and good reasons why the Bible is a very special and unique and miraculous book. We continue looking at some arguments for inerrancy. And that's kind of where we're, we're heading tonight with, with that uh, again. Tonight I want to deal with some Bible difficulties. These are just a few that I have picked out. And the reason we're going to get on to these is there are people that will go to classic Bible difficulties. There are some places in the Bible that if you don't really know uh, the context and a little bit about what the overall general tenor of Scripture teaches, uh, you get hung up on a few things and you wonder, this is a mistake. This couldn't be right. This is uh, something that doesn't make sense to me. And so they go from that, jumping over to talk about the Bible's not true. The, the Bible uh, has all kind of mistakes in it. The Bible is not inerrant. What is all this? And so we're going to try to deal with some of these kinds of, uh, of, of difficulties. <clears throat> One is uh, the time of the, the Last Supper. The time of the Last Supper in Matthew, Mark, and Luke happens um, on a Thursday, time of the Last Supper. And then we're going to see 
that John says something a little different. Luke 22, verse 7 through 15. This is Luke's account of the Last Supper. And can someone read Luke 22, verses 7 through 15? Okay. That's a pretty clear passage. Matthew and Mark pretty much say the same thing. They ate the Passover meal. Uh, over in John, John nineteen fourteen. It is now about noon on the day of the preparation for the Passover. And Pilate said to the people, Look, Here is your king. And then in verse uh, 30, when Jesus had tasted it, he said, It is finished. He bowed his head and released his spirit. It was the day of preparation and the Jewish leaders didn't want the bodies hanging there the next day. And uh, so some believe that the Passover that we think about, the Last Supper, the uh, first one, some of the writers say it happens on the Thursday night before the um, crucifixion. And then uh, John seems to say that the Passover meal is coming up later that evening. Is there a contradiction? And I think John is absolutely right. There is a Passover meal coming later that evening, that Friday night. But how do you explain what uh, what Luke said, what Matthew and Mark? I think the explanation is pretty simple. They simply ate the Passover meal 24 hours early. Jesus and his disciples sat down on a Thursday night, the night before his crucifixion, and uh, ate the Passover meal. Uh, Even though John says they are preparing the Passover meal while Jesus is on the cross. Is there a contradiction there? I don't think so. Leon Morris has a probably the best book ever written on the book of John. And uh, I guess most of you know who Leon Morris is. He's a super, super writer, great Bible teacher. Sometimes if you uh, can here at our uh, church library or just whenever you're in a good uh, Christian bookstore, check out uh, Leon Morris's commentary on John. It's, it's fantastic. I can't remember the exact name of the book. But uh, he gets into this argument. He gets into this so-called contradiction. And uh, he, he explains it very, very well. I, I, I really thought about just bringing his book out here and reading a page or two. Let's look at some of the doctrinal and moral... Yeah. I think the... Uh, I think the argument is, did they do a Passover meal uh, before the crucifixion? 
or not at all. Uh, they were the 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 point here is the Passover meal that's talked about didn't really happen. That's the the issue, and the the, the big issue is that. They were preparing the Passover meal for everybody Friday evening while Jesus was on the cross. They were preparing it. And so Jesus and his disciples could not take part in that particular Passover meal. So uh, some critics, some uh, scoffers and, and others just, just say the Passover meal. Uh, didn't happen. I think that's the, the main the main thing. That is a good point about uh, when a Hebrew day starts and stops. So uh, let's look at uh, some doctrinal and uh, moral, and be sure and just throw out stuff like that. Uh, it's okay if uh, nobody, uh, me especially, uh, uh, know the answer. <laughs> so, uh, throw some stuff out anytime. Uh, there are people that have problems with the Bible in areas of, uh, doctrinal and, uh, some moral issues. One of the things, and this bothers so many, is the destruction of the Canaanites over in, uh, Deuteronomy. Uh, mm. This is uh this is something that's been going on a while. Uh we all know that God commanded the Israelites to exterminate the Canaanites when they moved in into the land. Liberals for uh, many years now have raised questions about is this right? God Commanding a people to destroy another people. That doesn't uh, sound like uh, the God of the Bible. And there was a famous uh, Methodist bishop uh, that uh, wrote a book about this back, uh, I think, in the 40s or 50s. And he was famous for saying, if God Ask the Israelites to exterminate the Canaanites, then God is a dirty bully if he commanded this. And many, many, he was a, he was a, a famous Methodist bishop. And many, many, many pastors and church leaders down through the years have said something very similar. I was told of a well-known, famous Southern Baptist church back in the 70s, I think it was, that uh, in a Sunday school class, uh, they got on this particular passage, and we'll see this passage here in a second. It's over in Deuteronomy 20. And there was a, there was a well-known Christian leader that was a member of that church and was in this class. And when the 
more conservative Bible teacher got up and tried to explain that uh, this was simply a removal of a cancer from the human race and God does have a right to judge depravity. It's all through the Bible that God has this right. The uh, other Christian leader in the class just said in effect that is not correct and he tried to explain the typical liberal view of of what this is about pretty much the same as the uh, Methodist bishop who said God is a dirty bully God is unfair God is unloving God would never do such a thing therefore this passage you're reading in Deuteronomy is not correct that's a mistake in the Bible don't ever tell me the Bible is inerrant when it has something like this in it. That was basically the conversation. (laughs) You're exactly right. We were going to get to that. And um, that's exactly the point. A lot of people just don't understand who the Canaanites were. They would actually, for their religion, for their worship, they would build out of metal their understanding of a god. And the they would make this god hollow. And they would put a furnace inside uh, this god. They would build a fire. And they would heat up this metal god to where he would be white hot. And they would fashion him something like this with his arms out where he could hold something in his arms. And guess what they would do? They would place a baby, a live baby, three, four, six months old, maybe a year old, into that God's arms, the God they had made. And as soon as the baby was placed there, it just disintegrated. Yeah, just it was gone. It's like throwing a leaf in a bonfire. And uh, that's that's what the Canaanites were, were all about. That was worship. That was part of their religion. They may have uh, applauded it. That was their mindset. And so, the Bible commands that there can be judgment on ungodly people like this. This is uh, not anything that the Bible does not teach. And so, let's look at uh, Deuteronomy uh, chapter 20 for, uh, for just a minute. Deuteronomy 20, verses 16 through 18. Exactly. Pretty much. Anyone that really has a problem with the Israelites exterminating the Canaanites, it's basically because of a lack of understanding of Scripture. Uh, God has a right to judge depravity. 
And the Bible teaches that all through. Uh, probably would. Yeah, they probably would. Yeah, true. Really, the problem is they they don't know how to get around judgment or uh, fairness. If you think about it, God is perfect judgment. He is always fair, and uh, we have to. We have to trust this. In fact, there's a place every now and then where you read something in the Bible and you just think to yourself, oh man, this is this is uh, kind of hard to, to, to understand totally and completely. And we have to just uh, trust that God is a, is a God of justice. Uh, whenever you read some of the passages that deal with predestination, and election. So then, I, I know that's we could talk a couple hours on that, but uh, that a lot of people just walk away and say, "I I don't understand a God who selects some to be saved and He doesn't select others. I I don't understand that." That's uh, as I say that that's uh, for another day, but uh, there. Are, several things in scripture where we don't understand them perfectly but we have to uh, give that over to uh, the attributes of God there are uh, some psalms that talk about God reaping vengeance on enemies over in uh, the book of uh, Psalm let's see 59, Psalm 59 and uh, 59 verse 5, now verse 8, and then verse 13. This just goes uh, again into explaining that the whole Bible really teaches that God has a right to judge. The problem is not God. The problem is the way we think and the way we look at the way God operates. So the these things that we're talking about, just some uh, destruction of Canaanites and then in uh, several, and there are several more here that we could get into, but we won't. But uh, there are some uh, of the Psalms that get into the judgment of God. Uh, some people say, don't tell me the Bible's perfect and the Bible's uh, inerrant and the Bible doesn't have any mistakes. I just got through reading some stuff that I have a problem with and therefore I don't believe that the Bible is inerrant. There are a lot of people that uh, talk like that. And uh, there are others that talk like that because of another uh, issue in the Bible and that is the subject of slavery. The Old Testament and the New Testament seem to tolerate slavery. Uh, Ephesians chapter 6 and uh, Colossians 4, and we'll look at those in uh, just a minute. But Paul in these passages is dealing with how slaves and masters should treat each other. 
Can you imagine that? And Paul doesn't really say that it's wrong. Slavery, I mean. He doesn't say that slavery is wrong. In fact, the Bible doesn't push for the abolishment of slavery. doesn't push for it. And some people say, therefore, the Bible is morally imperfect and not inerrant. So what do we say about that? What's the answer? I think one of the answers is it's not Paul's purpose to undo all of the social injustices that were going on during his life. That's not what the New Testament is really about. And uh, yet, the Bible emphasizes preaching the gospel. The Bible emphasizes the new birth. The Bible emphasizes uh, how people change and they uh, their whole life is turned upside down. And knowing this full well is uh, what really uh, helped slavery get uh, get straightened out. Uh, William Wilberforce, most of us uh, know who that is. He was a famous, famous uh, person back in England in the uh, 1800s. He was a convert of the Wesley revivals. A guy goes to hear Wesley preach, he gets saved, and he gets into trying to get slavery abolished in England. Yeah, good good point. And it it works. It works. He he hears good preaching, he gets saved, and he makes a difference in the world. And Wilbur uh William Wilberforce, that that's uh I think there was a movie uh, on him and uh and all I think we even have a book or two in our uh, library. Wesley's convert. The Bible tells uh, people living under slavery how to deal with it. That's just a fact. That's what the Bible does. And the Bible even gets into how to adjust to it. The Bible even suggests that it's more important to be a, to be a good witness to your master than to even try to get free. Some people say, oh, I, I don't know if I can go with that one. Well, let's see what Ephesians 6 has to say. Ephesians 6, verses 5 through 9. Anybody? Yep. A Colossians 4, 1 is another one. Masters, be just and fair to your slaves. Remember that you also have a master in heaven. So there are some passages that the Bible is uh, actually dealing with. It's trying to make a master a better master and a slave a better slave. That doesn't mean that the Bible doesn't 
indicate that uh, slavery is right or wrong. It just doesn't deal with it. There's a lot of things that the Bible doesn't deal with. That doesn't mean the Bible is imperfect. It doesn't mean even that the Bible is soft on on the, the particular subject that we might be thinking about. The Bible is not soft on slavery just because it doesn't try to undo it. Slavery later got undone through the Christian witness. If you look at all of the uh, abolishment going on about slavery in this country and in Europe and other places, uh, it's a it's a Christian influence all over the place. And there's still slavery in the world, by the way. But guess where all that's going on? Exactly, it's going on in the non Christian countries, uh, countries that have almost zero Christian influence. Another, another um, problem a lot of people have with the Bible, they think it's uh, soft, not soft, but they think it's actually too hard on capital punishment. Yes. Yes. I think you are, you're right. I agree with that. Let's look at capital punishment. Uh, there are some people that are just against capital punishment. And so if the Bible suggests capital punishment, if there's any verses in the Bible that seem to indicate capital punishment should, should kind of be used here, it drives a lot of people up a wall. They just don't like capital punishment. Period. No, uh, no exceptions. Here's a fact. The Bible does teach capital punishment. Uh, Genesis 9, if any man sheds another man's blood, you know about that. And then, in Romans 13, about using the sword in vain, yeah, they have the power to punish you. I think that's about verse 4 or 5 right in there, the authorities. Most good uh, Bible commentaries and uh, good uh, conservative Bible scholarship especially uh, believes that Romans 13 here is clearly teaching capital punishment. There's some little debate here and there about that, but uh, for the most part, uh, it's looked upon by uh, well that's uh, of course liberals yeah of course liberals uh, they also look upon Christ as a martyr and they think he was killed but technically Christ was not killed Christ was not murdered Christ willingly gave his life and if he had wanted to hang on the cross for thousands of years, he could have done that. No man can kill Christ. He's God. He willingly gave up his life. Exactly. Well, that that's the big. That's one of the big uh, differences in uh, conservatives and liberals. Conservatives believe Christ willingly gave his life, whereas the liberals believe that Christ died a martyr's death. Uh, 
kind of in the same ballpark as their argument that Christ wasn't God, but he was a great man and uh, and a great moral uh, leader and uh, a great example. Well, if he said he was God, how could he be a good example? How could he be a good teacher or a good thinker or someone to look up to if he said he was God and was lying through his teeth? So, you know, I think it was, uh, who was that said either Jesus is either Lord, lunatic, or liar? Yeah, Josh McDowell said that a bunch of times. I think he was quoting Maybe C.S. Lewis, I don't remember, but uh, anyway, that's uh, that, that's uh, kind of the, the difference there. And of course, the Old Testament, uh, uh, many many crimes that were to be punished by uh, capital punishment. God is simply a God of justice, and the only conflicts with uh, with liberal philosophy is. is uh, or I should say that this only conflicts with the liberal philosophy, not the morality of God. Capital punishment, uh, uh, there's no, there's no issue, no problem. You can pick up the Bible and read where the Bible uh, endorses capital punishment. That should not bother anybody, because uh, the morality of God demands it. Uh, polygamy and divorce. Some people say the Bible produces or uh, promotes polygamy. And uh, it also has some things about uh, divorce. The polygamy part, um, which is, uh, you know, in the early, early Old Testament, Genesis and some other places, it gets into really the principle of progressive revelation. God is allowing people to, um, it's kind of a where Cain got his wife. Where did Cain get his wife? I think that's pretty clear. It's his sister. Absolutely. Had to be. Had to be. God didn't create uh, 100,000 people over on this continent, a hundred thousand here, a hundred thousand in this village, a hundred thousand behind us, and then you kind of found each other in your wanderings. Uh, that's not the way it happened. <laughs> oh, brother. Anyway, uh, our 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 point, I think, with progressive revelation, and and that is that. God reveals more to us through the Scripture, and the longer we go along, the more we can see things from God's perspective. I think a good example is we expect more of a teenager. If you've ever had kids, I guess that's all of us. Uh, we expect more of a 16-year-old than we do a 2-year-old. When they were 2, we didn't expect much. But when they got 8, 10, 12, and now 16 and 18, we expect a lot more. Now what happened? 
What happened? That's sort of like progressive revelation. What happened? Did did our standards change? No. The child quit being a two-year-old and became a 16-year-old. And so, our thinking about them and what we expect about them changed. Not a standard so much as the condition. And that's the way it is with polygamy. There's a condition in the world. And because of that condition, polygamy was allowed. And then after that condition got better and changed, polygamy started to say died off, but that may not be exactly true. But uh, the point is, there are people that believe that God promoted and stands behind and puts his stamp of approval on polygamy. And that is just not what the Bible teaches. Oh, of course. Exactly. That's another thing. There's a lot of uh, examples of many of the famous people in the Bible that had many wives. And so, uh, again, again, it's a, a polygamy thing. Exactly. Yeah, that's true. That's that's true. Yeah. Yep. Here's uh, Jim Dennison is a good a good Bible teacher. He's a sharp guy. He's a real theologian, and uh, he said one time about this about many. Examples of polygamy and many, many wives and all this kind of stuff. He said, what the Bible describes doesn't mean it is prescribing. Just because the Bible tells us about something doesn't mean it puts its stamp of approval on it. So I think that's a good point. Uh, some believe uh, in this same same kind of a topic here that Jesus contradicted the Old Testament. We got about well, we started a little late, but we'll go about five more minutes. Did Jesus contradict the Old Testament? Some believe that Jesus played down the Old Testament because six times in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said. You have heard it said. And then he goes on to to kind of say, he said, you've heard it said in old times. Back then, you've heard it said in the old scriptures. But I say, what what's that all about? Is Jesus... Exactly. I think that Jesus is saying here that the Old Testament, he wasn't saying that the Old Testament was lacking and that it, it wasn't perfect. He wasn't, he wasn't saying that at all. He's actually, let's just look at a, at a, an example here in Matthew a little bit. Yes, sir. And then you've got, uh, 
Matthew 5, 33 and following. You've also heard that our ancestors were told you must not break your vows. You must carry out the vows you make to the Lord. But I say, do not make any vows. Do not say by heaven because heaven is God's throne. And uh, on and on and on. And so the deal is, what is Jesus actually saying? Exactly. The uh, the deal is, he's not criticizing what the Old Testament says about vows. He's actually uh, talking about the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. What the Pharisees were doing uh, was taking some Old Testament passages and Old Testament principles and adding to them, distorting them, perverting them. And uh, Jesus here is, is saying that Pharisees and, and uh, uh, the scribes were simply playing with words. And so this is, he was, he was on to them. He was saying, in effect, what you've been hearing from the Pharisees is not so good. Here's what I say about that. And what it may look like in Scripture is Jesus is saying, don't pay attention to the Old Testament. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, don't pay attention to the Pharisees' perversion of the Old Testament. Yes. Absolutely. You're talking about five? Not criticizing what the Old Testament says about things. He's just simply... uh, Exactly. It doesn't say that at all. Over in Exodus in in Deuteronomy, it's talking about... uh, Over in Exodus in Deuteronomy, it's talking about uh, the... uh, passage there is talking about uh, some traditions that were being taught. It's not being taught in the Old Testament, but it's being taught about punishment. And in most cultures, it wasn't punishment, it was vengeance. In our country, uh, when we started and developed and put together some laws and put together a constitution, we got into uh, uh, cruel and unusual punishments were not going to be allowed around here. Now, what were they referring to? They were referring to Europe where cruel and unusual punishments were all over the place. And back in the biblical times, same thing. And so... This is a this is a big ad- advancement. It it's not talking about no punishment. It's talking about let's give punishments that fit the crime. In biblical times, Old Testament and New Testament, the government was giving out big punishments for little crimes. And Jesus dealt with that and uh, and others. So the, the context here has to do with the courts, not so much the Scripture. And when you get a chance, our time's really up, but Exodus 21, Deuteronomy 19, kind of uh, 
get into that. Uh, I think we're going to stop here. We're going to get into some scientific things. We're going to get into creation evolution a little bit. Evil spirits. I've heard someone say, I don't believe the Bible because the Bible teaches about evil spirits and demons. How can how can a book that I'm supposed to take seriously talk about that? We're going to get into miracles and then a few other things. And as soon as we finish that, we'll get into uh, talking about the uh, the English translations of the Bible. Get into some of the the better ones, not so good, and uh, strengths and weaknesses, and some of the facts about translations. We'll meet uh, next week, and then we'll do another one after that. So two more. Let's uh, close in prayer. Lord, thank you for uh, everybody that's come here tonight. I pray uh, your blessings on them, and uh, we're grateful for a Bible that we can trust. We're uh, grateful for a God that loves us and uh, that we can also uh, trust. And uh, we ask you to to uh, bless our church and uh, the leaders here. Give us a safe journey where we're going. And I pray that the next two uh, sessions here would be profitable and that we would learn what we need to see. In uh, Christ's name I pray, amen.